Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. We are thrilled to announce the launch of this podcast network to add more avenues to grow awareness and innovation around analytics and sports. We are excited to make the panel discussions from our 2019 conference, which covers a wide range of sports and analytics topics available via podcast for the very first time. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Devin Shapiro. I'm a first year MBA at Sloan, and it's my pleasure to introduce Baseball 2.0, Updating America's Pastime. Uh, joining me on the panel are Joe Poznowski, best-selling author and writer at The Athletic, Ariel Kelman, VP of Marketing at Amazon, Chris Young, VP of On-Field Ops at Major League Baseball, uh, Frank Marcos, uh, who is a product manager for scouting technology at LBI Dynasty, and our panel will be moderated by Ben Lindbergh, staff writer at The Ringer and podcaster for Fangraphs. Uh, the panel will consist of 45 minutes and then 15 minutes of Q&A. Uh, please submit your questions via Twitter using the hashtag #UpdatingBaseball. With that, I'll hand it over to Ben. Thank you, Devin, and thanks to all of you for choosing us over those other panels at the same time. So we are here for the, the true national pastime, which is talking about how baseball could be better. And I want to, I think, direct the first question to Joe, because I know this is something that you've written about and read about. We're on our third century, I think, of talking about how baseball is in trouble. <laughs> and it's still here. And there's a lot about the game right now that is better than it's ever been. Certainly the players are better than they've ever been. The accessibility, the you know, streaming the game and the stats and attendance in some ways is better than it was in earlier eras, parity, et cetera. But so much of the conversation is negative and baseball seems to have this reputation as the boring slow game that it can't seem to shake. So do you think that the current discussion about the game is any different in nature from those past discussions about how baseball is in trouble? Well, yeah, they're different because they're on Twitter. So, <laughs> right. you know, our technology to complain about baseball is way better now. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think what's really interesting is that, is, and, and I mean this semi-seriously, if, if baseball people couldn't complain about baseball, it would be a big, it would hurt the game. Yeah. Like part of the game's joy is oh, how could the game be better while always wanting to the game to stay exactly the same. And I think that's the big difference between baseball and every other sport uh, is that romance for the past and that sense that it used to be better, but also that sense of, oh, we, what can we do to make it you know, better? It's, it's, there's no other sport where we care about who, what anybody did in 1927. It's like, this is the only sport that anybody cares about, uh, you know, who Babe Ruth was, or Lou Gehrig was, who Walter Johnson was, and you look at every other sport and the people of those times, and it was, they were, you know, nobody even knows their names. And so, uh, so that's baseball's challenge. Baseball's challenge is, okay, it's the slow game. It's been the slow game since 1904 when the first story about it being too slow for America was, was written. Uh, it's the slow game. It's, it's, it, it doesn't, the kids don't love it. All these things are, are always going to be a part of the game. But at the same time, you also have to connect to this history. So that's the challenge. The challenge in updating baseball is making it better for the future, but you can't ever, uh, the past is such a big part of it. Right, yeah. 
Well, Chris, I want to ask you about this because you're the lone MLB representative here, as well as the lone professional athlete, as people can probably tell. So how much effort does MLB put into deciding what people want baseball to be? Because I think we all like different things about baseball. Depending on when we got into the game, we like a different style of baseball. And we all say the games are too long, and people say that's because you're a writer and you want to go home. And the true baseball <laughs> fans, they don't care if the game is four hours long. So does MLB do a lot of research to say what do our fans want? What should we want the game to look like? Yeah, Ben, that's uh, absolutely. I mean, that's an important part of any industry, I'm sure, is to know uh, your consumer. And certainly, um, Major League Baseball is very sensitive to um, what the fans want and constantly polling them to see uh, their opinion and ideas regarding the current state of the game and where it should be headed. And, um, you know, with that in mind, what you identified and what Joe just said, there's just finding that balance of, um, you know, the tradition and history of the game with uh, the evolution of it as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's a constant um, challenge, but it's also a great opportunity to continue to grow it and expand it and still maintain the, all the things we all love about it. Yeah. And for people who haven't seen the recent news about the partnership with the Atlantic League to potentially test out some new ideas, can you talk a little bit about that and about the ongoing conversations about how we actually are going to change the game at some point in the next few years? Yeah, you know, the, the Major League Baseball recently reached an agreement with the Atlantic League to do some experimental rules testing. Uh, previously, they had an agreement um, for the transfer of players. This is just in addition to that. Um, but it's an opportunity for Major League Baseball to try out um, some different ideas and experimentation in an in a environment that is outside of affiliated baseball. And, uh, you know, all with high-level players who have had either big league or upper minor level uh, experience. And so um, while what those changes are going to look like and how they're going to impact the game, it's to be determined. Um, and really their impact on the major league game is probably going to be minimal um, for a while. Uh, but it gives us an opportunity, a great opportunity, to really roll out some ideas and test things and see how the product looks. Mm -hmm. And Ariel, can you talk a little bit about what you've learned over the past few years when it comes to presenting this information that some people find intimidating at first blush, but if you get into it, it can be a way to bring new people to the game. So what's sort of the secret to presenting all this new technology in a way that brings more people in instead of turning them off? Sure. Yeah, we've been working with the MLB StatCast team for over four years now on um, you know, really helping them make the most of the data they're gathering, the telemetry, player tracking data they're gathering from the stadiums. And I think one of the most challenging and I think just fun and interesting parts of the problem is figuring out how you take all that data, I think I wrote this down here, 17 tero, uh, petabytes of data gathered per season. How do you find a useful way to show that to fans that makes the game better, but also works operationally and is compatible with the talent being able to tell the stories that they want during the broadcast. And um, MLB really took the lead of all sports in, in doing this. And you know, we sort of saw it iterate from first, OK, let's just show the data. Let's see how fast someone ran before they caught a ball. And then let's maybe put it in context of, well, that was the third fastest that an outfielder has run this season. And then to start to apply more um, predictive analytics, more machine learning on top of it, like, well, what was the catch probability? So to provide that kind of data uh, or analysis, 
uh, as a way to explain something that uh, someone with deep baseball experience would say anyways, that was a really tough catch. Mm -hmm. And be able to enhance the storytelling and provide the, you know, a little bit of the why behind um, analyses that in, in, in beliefs that people are already saying about player or performance or manager decision making. Mm -hmm. And Frank, because you go back to the 80s at the Scouting Bureau and you've seen how player procurement has changed, how player development has changed, can you talk a little bit about how this new information and new technology is actually enhancing player performance in a way that can be difficult to tell because players are playing contemporary players and so you can't put them on the field with players from previous eras and see them dominate them, but you could assume that they would probably. So can you talk a little bit about just how you've seen the level of play evolve? Well, Ben, first of all, I think when you look at the product on the field, um, as a fan, hopefully you're, you're seeing you know, a good product, whether it's better than it was 15, 20 years ago or not, it's still the best in the world. I mean, what, what these guys do, like Chris and, 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 and everybody else playing big league baseball, they are at the top, they are at the top of their game. How does the analytics affect them? I think in terms of it's just more data. You know, analytics in my time back in the 80s was batting average, ERA, you know, the, the simple stats. Now we have stats that break it down to what is he going to throw, you know, with a runner at second, two out in a day game on natural grass. I mean, seriously, whatever you want, it's out there. I think players such as Chris and, and, and others that understand the value of more data are going to become maybe not a great player, but they can improve. A marginal player can get a little better because there's more data out there that could show spin rate, exit velocity, launch angle, things that were just what we did as scouts. We said, yeah, he has an uppercut. Uh, you know, he has a good breaking ball. But now, when you put it together with their their uh, their ability and their knowledge, their intelligence, to break it down to show them how they can get better. I think the product on the field has a chance to improve going forward. Yeah. And Chris, since you were on the field as recently as last spring, can you talk a little bit about playing through that era where all of this stuff started to pervade the game, where players started to become more receptive to it? How did you see that embrace happen, and how has that changed the type of players who were coming along who maybe <laughs> throw a little bit harder than, than you did at the time? Yeah, uh, Ben, that's a great point. I mean, they. You know, at the beginning of my career, the, the data was simple. Um, it still was useful, but it was just um, simple. Now the, the volume of data and the complexity of it is so much greater than it was, but the players have adapted and they understand the value of it and how to use it, not only for scouting purposes, but for personal performance purposes. I mean, all the training that players are doing in the off season, the way they're evaluating their own, you know, for pitchers specifically, their spin rates, their hand position, um, the, the vertical and horizontal break on certain pitches, um, they're really using it as a tool to improve their performance. And I think that you have seen that over the last really, you know, eight to 10 years, um, the jump, especially in the velocity in the game right now. And, uh, you know, I, I think that everyone welcomes the opportunity to improve their performance. And if you're not doing that, you're at a competitive disadvantage. Right. And Joe, because you've covered all sports and you've seen this analytics revolution reach all of them in various ways, there's a perception, I think, that in other sports it's maybe enhanced the spectator experience, whether it's three-point shooting in basketball or passing in football, whereas in baseball you have teams getting more efficient all the time, you have players getting better all the time. 
but in a way there's sort of misaligned incentives where what's good for players and what's good for teams, not necessarily the best for fans. Do you think that's a concern in baseball particularly? Well, it is a concern, but it's, it's, it has broached in other sports as well. I mean, there was that time in the 90s in the NBA when the, clearly the analytics or whatever it was led teams to believe they needed to play a much more physical brand and scoring went way down and everybody was beating each other up in the lane and, and it, was a, it was not that fun to watch. Uh, that happened in hockey with his own trap where, you know, they came up with the, the, you know, through analytics came up with, hey, this is the most effective way to prevent other teams from scoring goals. And goals went way down and the sport really suffered. So it's always a danger. And there's no question there are more analytics in baseball. There always have been. Uh, it's, the sport is just much more of a laboratory because every event is sort of its own separate thing. So it's always a danger. I mean, there's no question that nobody really is that crazy about there being as many strikeouts as there are in the game right now. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the strikeout is an exciting play, but when, it, when it's, you know, you see 17, 18 of them every game, it, it really loses uh, quite a bit. Um, you know, the shift is obviously a tremendous uh, weapon for, for, the, for the defense, and I don't think there's any reason uh, really within the rules of the game to change it or outlaw it. I mean, it's always been one against eight. That's the game. But... Does it make the game a better viewing experience? It's a real question. And so, so there's no, you, you look and there are traps everywhere. And the more you understand about the game, the more that you can find ways to be more efficient, that doesn't necessarily make it a better viewing experience. And it is something that baseball needs to face for sure. And Chris, because you've been on both sides of that issue and were recently a player and now you're helping implement pitch clocks in spring training, for instance, which some players might not be thrilled about initially, how do you sell that sort of change to players who are you know, primarily concerned with their own performance and their team's performance as they should be? How do you try to impress upon them the importance of making the sport better for everyone? Yeah, I mean, it's a, there's a balance there for sure. And players evaluate firstly on how it's gonna impact them individually or within the team. Um, but as they step back, they also have a greater good uh, in mind, and they understand the value of improving the game, and that everybody benefits. The, the league benefits, the players benefit, and the, more importantly, the fans benefit. And so I think that uh, as players step back when rules change like this, um, you know, when they see the big picture in the moment, it's hard at times, and it may impact them. But over the last few years, there have been several uh, rule changes that have been implemented pretty seamlessly, um, from the catcher slide rule to uh, reducing mound visits to uh, even the slide rule at, at second base. So, um, you know, the players adapt. These are highly skilled and trained athletes who are very um, adaptable within the rules they're given. Um, they may not like it at first, but eventually they adapt. Can I ask you about mound visits? Yeah. <laughs> How many do you need? <laughs> How many? What percentage? It depends on of, the game. <laughs> yeah. What percentage yeah. of mound visits in your career were necessary or helpful or could have been avoided with a, say, you know, between innings kind of conference? Yeah, I think there. You know, obviously, mound visits for I, most of my career was spent as a starting pitcher. Most mound visits for a starting pitcher are either at high leverage points in the game where the game's on the line or uh, where you're really struggling early. <laughs> and, and I had plenty of those, um, <laughs> but I preferred the, the latter, the, the, the former, where uh, you know, that's probably a scouting decision and more so even in the National League when there's a pinch hitter coming up um, or you're just in a tough spot and you need to step back and take a break. But um, you know, 
I think the, the, the growth in the mound visits over the past few years is also has to do with technology and um, the ability to steal signs. And I think that players have become aware of the um, constant technology in ballparks and just constant, they, they, they worry and want to make sure that they are mixing their signs up. And uh, I think that contributed to the mound visits. I think that last year we made great progress in that and the game improved, the players adjusted, and we have a better product. And of course, there are more pitchers per game and more pitchers per team and more pitchers per season. And so it, it takes more communication maybe to get on the same page. So Frank, we were talking about how new technology is affecting how players prepare. How is it affecting scouting, which is your background? Because we're always talking about how new technology affects the human element, whether it's umpiring, which maybe we'll get into, but also with scouting, because you do have this data, this automated technology that replicates some of what scouts have historically done. So how do you fit the two into the, the progressive team? Well, you know me, my, my background is that old school scouting. Now I'm doing some things with LBI in terms of how we take all that information and aggregate it into a central location and make it available for everybody. The successful clubs still have your old time scouting. They still value uh, an opinion by uh, a baseball expert on scouting, recruiting, um, but they also have recognized the importance of all this data and, um, and how to put it together. Um, you know, and from my point of view, I saw the evolution of scouts being, you know, the former ball player, spitting tobacco, starting to get a little younger, scout school, we, so we trained you, yes. okay. Thank you for one that. of our best students right here. <laughs> I could use a refresher. Well, come on over, we'll take care of you. Um, to the point now where it, the, the clubs are hiring younger and younger individuals that are more capable of understanding uh, the, the new analytics, if you will, in the game. And the organizations that are successful, whether it be St. Louis, Houston, uh, Atlanta, uh, and, and the Dodgers, and, and I'm not slighting anybody on purpose, but those come to mind, they have figured a way to marry the two. And, and the organizations that haven't figured that out, they're either way too advanced on the analytics, but they've given up on the, the old school, or vice versa. And I think the clubs that we're seeing do well. For example, Boston. They still have a lot of old school guys there, but they also understand the value of what the new analytics will do. And once you get all that information, the only way it's going to be successful to get it to guys like this is to have player development staff that can translate that to the, to the players at the minor league level, to have a coaching staff that buys into all of that new information and technology to set lineups, to set you know, uh, matchups, bullpens, that's where the game is going. And in terms of scouting, if you can marry those two things, old school with all the new stuff, you're going to have a very successful organization. So, Ariel, how do you see the typical fan marrying those two things when it comes to consuming the game, not just in terms of broadcast use, but maybe in the ballpark? If there's going to be more downtime between pitches, can we fill that downtime with technology in a way that will keep people's attention on the game? Yeah, I mean, I think the whole issue of what type of additional data and information, how it's presented and what form it's consumed for fans is, is a real emerging area that is not really figured out yet. If you, if you sort of think about what, you know, the traditional linear broadcast of putting something in there that's additional data, you're having the challenge of it being one size fits all. And while in the amount of the appetite for advanced metrics and different types of analyses varies tremendously from fan to fan. And so 
you know, there's this evolving pattern of, of adding more on linear TV. And then there's great experimentation happening on alternate broadcast. We had another panel on that earlier today, but the work ESPN uh, and, and the StatCast team at MLB did last year on the, uh, the wildcard game, the, the Rockies and uh, Cubs, of ha just leaning in on advanced stats the whole game. I think there was about 79 advanced stats integrations. Really, I think, opened a lot of people's eyes to how, how much more progressive more of the fans were than I think people thought. And then, you know, there's also the idea of saying, let's not mess with the broadcast, but let's just really double down on this second screen experience and be able to give a level of rich data to fans that just doesn't work on TV. If you think about uh, um, being able to show people for all, uh, a table for all the, the people in the, in the bullpen, all the batters coming up, what are the on-base percentages of all the matchups? Never really put that on TV, but to have that in an app, uh, and then in addition to augmenting uh, the data that, that are being showed people, you're talking about what about in the stadium? And I think that's, that's where there's a lot of broadcasters, a lot of companies, a lot of teams looking at what are, you know, what are ways to gamify the experience. You have so many kids nowadays that are just, they live in these video games or watching people play the video games on YouTube and Twitch. And with all the natural breaks in baseball, there's just a lot of opportunity to be able to have people, um, you know, interact and compete against their friends, mm -hmm. even you know, setting aside gambling, just from a, a, a playing games and competing with your friends, you know, this is what this generation of kids are doing all the time. Mm -hmm. Baseball is natural for it. Ariel talked about in in the statcast. He was talking about it. I just found this fascinating. I would love to hear you talk more about this because it's talking about updating the game. This is a game that so relies on its history. And he was talking about the advances that, that can be made in bringing a lot of these advanced stats that, that, and analytics that we know to old players, using, using footage, using video, looking to be able to see. And the, the, uh, the possibilities for baseball fans to compare Roger Clemens in 86 to Nolan Ryan in 73 to Steven Strasburg today is endless. I mean, you know, it, it, for a sport that, that obviously needs to look to the future, it's always also got to look to the past, and, and you were talking about the, the real possibilities of being able to do that as we go forward. And I think and what's amazing is this is only possible for the last couple of years where the, the uh, video um, computer vision technology was advanced enough to be able to extract, retrofit, whatever the right word is, the telemetry data that is gathered uh, optically through StatCast now to historical plays, and in, it's being done in other sports too by a number of organizations. And you know, I just I get excited by the idea of saying, well, what was the probability of success of the Dave Roberts steal in the 2004 ALCS? And um, I think those historical comparisons, having that pop up on the, someone's phone to say, well, the last time someone did you know this level of performance and whatever metric you're looking at, to be able to go back even in the pre-Stackcast era. I think, you know, could be really interesting. And, and I think for, you know, we're going to see it in a lot of other sports mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, well, Joe, I was going to ask you about that because you've been one of the most active and successful writers, I think, when it comes to fusing history and storytelling and also new age stats, sometimes for older publications that you might have been the first to do that there. <laughs> so what has been the secret to doing that in a way that you find brings people in? Well, it's, it, it, it was exactly what they talked about. That StatCast broadcast, I hope all of you got a chance to see some of it or, or all of it. It was amazing. 
because it was about storytelling. And, and that's the part that never changes. I mean, whether you're using numbers, whether you're using uh, sort of what your eye can see, whether you're using quotes, whether you're using background information, it's all about the storytelling around the game. The game itself is, is wonderful to watch, but it, it, how are you gonna enhance that in any way? And it's got to be through telling the story. And what they did so well on that broadcast was they didn't just throw numbers at you, and they didn't even throw numbers at you necessarily that, that are interesting. It wasn't, I mean, it was certainly some of that, but they gave you statistics that showed you exactly why a play was great, or they, why, this would be a really good situation to steal, or you know things that, that when you're watching the game, you're thinking about, but now you have an opportunity to actually see it. Um, and that's all sports. I mean, you can see that across all sports, some of the things that they're doing in football now where you can watch uh, in real time whether the offensive lineman is one uh, or whether the defensive lineman is one, or whether you can see whether going for a field goal, you can see instantly whether or not that's the right percentage play for trying to win. That kind of stuff is so fascinating from a storytelling perspective. And for me, I write about people mostly. Um, that's my job. And so what I can get out of those statistics is this can tell me why Mike Trout is so great. You know, I mean, I know Mike Trout's great. You know Mike Trout's great. We can see it. We can watch it. But then you can find uh, numbers throughout that show, oh, he does this 5% better than anybody else in baseball, right? He does this better and this... And it just enhances the game. I think the big problem we've had as, as people trying to really sell uh, you know, the, these new analytics to, to fans is we don't connect them enough with stories. And we throw them at them and they're like, well, what do I care? You know, batting average did fine for me. And it's like, yes, batting average is fine, but this statistic can, can tell you something even a little bit more and it can tell you a little bit more about who this player is, what makes this player great. And that, to me, is, I think, what the key is. And I think you start with the storytelling and you build it from there. Mm -hmm. And Chris, have you sensed any concern, reluctance among players when you were a player about the level of information and the intrusiveness of the information in the future if we're talking about wearable devices or devices that are tracking you off the field, for instance? Is that something that the Players Association or that players that you spoke to at the time were wary of, or is it generally bring it on? Yeah, I think that, I think players are understanding that any data out there now can be used uh, for them, but also against them. And so they're cognizant of that, um, but yet they want to cooperate and use that to their advantage to get better as, as athletes. And I think that it's for the players, it's finding the balance and knowing that the data is um, really protected and that they can you know, use it to their benefit. It won't be held against them. Um, for any type of wearable tech at least. Um, and then in regards to their specific performance and all the advanced statistics too, um, you know, there becomes a point where it's it's, it, it becomes paralysis by analysis and you're out there competing and you've got so many thoughts and so many access to really so many um, statistics that it impacts your ability to compete and you overanalyze, you overthink and you lose focus on uh, really what you do well and how to get you know in that how to get out of that situation if you're a pitcher or as a hitter you overanalyze what the pitcher may throw or um, you know trying to go through every percentage and uh, it impacts your performance negatively so there's there's that balance that you have to strike as a player that um, will allow you to optimize your performance without um, really paralyzing you and that's the challenge that today's athletes face. Mm -hmm. Frank can you talk a little bit about people who've been in the game 
since before this stuff began to pervade everything and who have maybe found a way to integrate it into what they do, particularly coaching, because I think the role of coaching has changed where now you have to be receptive to that information. You have to be the conduit between the front office and the field. You can't say, this is my experience, this is the way we always did it, and this is the way we're gonna to continue to do it. So what's the key to adaptability? Well, I, I think we're seeing it where, you know, the typical GM historically was an older uh, former ex-player or someone that was involved with the game. Today, the GMs are younger. Uh, they've embraced uh, the analytics. Uh, but the only way they will make it work with guys like Chris and the rest of the team, they have to bring on board uh, major league coaches, uh, farm director, scouting director, uh, player development people that are also buying into the concept of how all this extra data can help. Um, I think, you know, as we look at some of the managers that are no longer in the game today, uh, show Walters and Sochet to some degree, going back years ago, obviously, Pinella and some others, could we see them work in today's environment with this data? I'd like to say yes, but personally, I don't think they would. I think we're looking at managers like an A.J. Hinch, uh, Baldelli, who, who are now embracing what's available to them to be able to make it available to the players. And again, you can't force the players to, to eat this. They have to be willing to do it. But it's out there. It's available to them. And having a staff from from the general manager all the way down to that major league uh, st uh, coaching staff that's bought into it is crucial to any organization being successful. So I think we're gonna see even more of a shift with coaches and managers that aren't necessarily the mold of the former uh, big league player, uh, but maybe someone that had a decent career but, but has a background such as a Chris Young uh, with uh, colleges and analytics that they're going to embrace it and be more competitive when it comes to putting all that into play. Mm -hmm. I want to ask maybe any of you who wants to weigh in about the idea that baseball has become this local, regional game, more so than a national game, Joe. Maybe you could start it off. Whether you think that long-term that is a concern, that you don't have people just tuning in to watch whatever game is on, they want to see their team, and if their team's not playing, they're not watching that leads to maybe less of a star power for, for the most prominent players in the sport compared to other sports. Do you see that as long-term something that might take a toll on the game's popularity? Well, I think what's important to, to, to start with is this, is this is where baseball guided the game. Uh, this is the, by, by having all of these lo local affiliates, Fox uh, Sports and, and uh, NBC Regionals and all these other regional networks, um, if you're living in Chicago, you watch the Cubs or the White Sox. If you're living in, in Boston, you watch the Red Sox. If you're living in Cleveland, you watch the Indians. If you're living in LA, you watch the Dodgers, if you have the right cable. Um, <laughs> but, but that's what you're watching. You're watching that team. So it's, it's a whole season's worth of storytelling that you're getting. And you can see every game. Every game basically is available. So sure, when that season's over for you, the season's over for you. You're not watching these other teams. It used to be, it was different, and it was, it's, it's funny because it was so much less access to baseball, but when you had access, mm -hmm. it was to whatever team they wanted to show you, right? It's like Saturday game of the week, the Monday night game of the week, all those sorts of things. So you did get like this sort of overall vibe and this overall feel for the game, now you're so bought in to your own team 
And I don't see that necessarily changing. I don't, I, I, you know, I would love for baseball to regain some of its national, and there are ways to do it that I'm sure we'll talk about. But that aspect of, you know, baseball's more popular than ever before. I mean, in 20 markets, I just talked with, with, uh, with uh, someone over at, at Fox Sports, and he was giving me amazing numbers. In 20 markets, I believe, baseball isn't the number one sport uh, in that town. It's the number one show all summer. The number wow. one television show across cable and across network is the local baseball. And so baseball is hugely, hugely popular, but as soon as your team's out, you're out. And baseball's got to find a way to continue to build that local because it's still going to, that's still going to be the driving force, but also figure out a way to create more of a national vibe. And I think a lot of these things that, that you know, such as, you know, doing different kinds of broadcasts, second screens, uh, making the experience uh, more, you know, so, so that you don't have to be, you don't have to be so bought in in order to catch, hey, I'm a, I'm a Red Sox fan, but you know this. It would really be cool to watch this this Braves Dodgers game, so I'm going to do it. Um, baseball has to work on that aspect of it without losing the the best local uh, that they've ever had, mm -hmm. that, that baseball's ever had. So that's yeah. that's a balance. Right. Yeah, Ariel. I'll ask you about that because. <laughs> There's a lot of baseball. I don't know if you've noticed, there's just a lot of baseball. There's more baseball than there is action in other sports. And that is a positive in the sense that if you need to fill airtime, baseball is a really efficient way to do it. <laughs> but it is also difficult, I think, to turn an individual baseball game into an event the way that, say, a once a week game could be. So how do you have this game that is on all the time and still find a way to attract people to a particular game and, and avoid the kind of apples to oranges comparisons when you start talking about ratings for a football game versus a baseball game when there's just such a, a scarcity of football compared to baseball? I mean, I think you know, different sports are different, and I think we get into trouble and make these apples to oranges comparisons. I mean, just on the, the subject of um, people being overly local, if you look at one of the opposites of that, of, of you know, you hear some people complaining that you know, basketball with kids has been more uh, star-focused and their allegiance to teams will shift as the stars move, which creates a whole different set of problems. So it's sort of pick your poison on these things. And I've always been a proponent of just embrace the uniqueness uh, for, for what it is. Um, but I think, you know, the other aspect um, the, on this is, you know, the, the, the more, back to sort of the gamification and gambling, the the more that there is something to do other than watching your team, the more you'd be interested in engaging it, engaging with, with uh, teams you wouldn't normally. And I, I think one of the interesting things to be to look at is as they start to, you know, gambling is being legalized in different states, be a data analysis thing to be good to look at is, does that change people's amount of time watching non-local teams? Because you, you would think potentially it could. Mm -hmm. Well, Chris, you know, I wonder how much you all at MLB think about hooking the new fan as opposed to keeping the fan who's already invested, because if you grew up with baseball and you've been watching your whole life, you're probably not going to tune out because the game got 10 minutes longer, but maybe that would be the difference for someone who is just considering, do I want to watch baseball or do I want to watch this hundred other things that are on Netflix right now or whatever other entertainment option there is, do you find that 
pace versus length is that kind of, uh, do you skew towards pace as something that is more important? And do you think about different qualities that might rope in someone who is not already a convert as opposed to someone who grew up with the game and is already invested? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, there's, there's, you know, the next generation of fans is on the radar for MLB, and certainly we want to create a product that appeals to them. Um, I have uh, kids myself, and one of my boys absolutely loves baseball, and the other has no interest whatsoever. So, uh, you know, taking them to a game um, together is going to be complete, two completely different experiences. And uh, I think that's true for probably most families out there. And so being able to capture, um, you know, the, the, the kids today and the next generation, and, and that's why Major League Baseball is a huge youth initiative right now that has been uh, extremely popular and the game continues to grow at the youth level. And, um, and you know, those kids, while they prefer uh, action in the game, there's also a bond with their parents or grandparents coming to a game and sitting in the stadium and seeing the same game being played um, and viewing it two different ways. And that's the, the balance that Major League Baseball is trying to, uh, to accomplish, but um, collectively growing the game together and, and putting the best product out there that appeals across generations. And that's um, probably true of all sports to an extent, but baseball has a unique position that uh, there's sort of a pace and cadence to the game that allows you to sit there with your family and enjoy it while, without missing too much action at one time and um, kind of come and go as you please, too. Um, and that's the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. yeah, Can I elaborate on sure, that? Sure, yeah. You know, what, what Chris is saying is so important. Um, is what, one kid loves baseball, the other is not. From a scouting standpoint, we've been seeing this for a number of years where um, the, the interest in the game has shifted because, and unfortunately, it has to do with the way the kids are being trained or coached. Um, one of the biggest issues I think that MLB should be dealing with uh, with the youth initiatives is how do we train uh, and how do we educate the coaches to make the game enjoyable. You, they've rolled out that five on five, they're trying different things, and they have to do that because from our standpoint as scouting, our um, our pool of players that we typically look at over the years has shrunk because we've gotten away from community baseball. American Legion, Babe Ruth, Dixie, those great programs that, that players, even be well before Chris, participated in, they're gone. And so now community programs are much fewer out there and the game has shifted to travel ball, uh, showcases, and from a scouting standpoint, it's great. We can go to one spot, we see the best players against the best talent, and it's easier to make evaluations. But unfortunately, from the perspective of Major League Baseball, trying to grow the game, uh, we're missing the boat here because we're, we're having too many kids that, yeah, they play a t-ball, and then they move up to seven and eight and nine, and all of a sudden, when, when they're in their preteen years, I don't want to play. The game is not exciting. I'm going to go do basketball, football, lacrosse, whatever it is we're losing too many kids domestically uh, as they get older, so our pool is shrinking. And that's easy to look at in terms of the roster makeup on opening day. You know, you look at the increase in international players, how every year that number's going up, whereas it shouldn't be. We still have a great population here that love and want to play baseball, but unfortunately, our teachers of baseball at the youth level, they're not well prepared to make the game exciting. I mean, there are ways that we can 
uh, take this game and in an hour's practice time, make it exciting, teach the kids and get them prepared for a game. But unfortunately, they go out there and they spend way too much time. They'd rather be on their computer, their phone, they're playing games. So there's a competitiveness that we have as trying to teach the game to kids versus what they're doing with technology. And if, if we as an industry, and I say we, baseball, amateur, uh, professional, whatever, if we don't recognize that and try to uh, embrace what we have at a young age and cultivate it as they get older, our, our domestic numbers are going to continue to shrink. And if you look at the groups of Pony Baseball, Little League, they all have good numbers when the kids are young. But as they start getting older, they we're losing them. And it didn't used to be that way. We used to have a great network of being able to find players in, in communities all over the country. Now we have to go to Florida, we go to Texas, we go to California to find the players because that's where the travel ball teams go, that's where the showcases are. And so a lot of kids in the Midwest, Upper North, they say, you know what, if I can't get down there, I can't play, I'm going to go do something else. And that, to me, is something that Major League Baseball needs to continue to grow with USA Baseball, which I know they've created a lot of initiatives to help the game get better at the lower level. We're not officially up to the Q&A stage yet, but I'm going to take one question here because we were kicking around backstage, and I know that we might need more than a few minutes for it. We want to talk about robo-umps and how it would change the game. Chris, can you start off just from a player's perspective, but also from the perspective of someone who may very soon be helping test and implement that idea at the Atlantic League? Will players like that, and technologically, is it feasible, and what are maybe some of the unintended consequences? Yeah, that's uh, it's something we're studying right now, um, is you know the use of technology to improve uh, the game and specific to umpiring. Um, with that in mind, it's still, I'd say, a ways to go. And there's a lot of um, testing that has to take place, and I wouldn't say that's uh, immediately on the radar. Um, there are a lot of logistical issues of just even how to communicate that to an umpire. This isn't to replace umpires by any means. Umpires are always going to be needed on the field. Uh, one, because technology is not 100% reliable at all times. There's still a margin of error. Uh, but secondly, um, there are calls on the field that uh, umpires have to make. And within balls and strikes, um, even if you went to an automated strike zone, uh, like I said, which is still probably a ways away, um, there are check swings, there are foul balls, they're hit by pitches, um, and you have to have an umpire there to make those calls. Uh, within an automate, automated strike zone, uh, you know, there has to be instant communication to an umpire so he can make a visual signal to allow the players on the field to see the call um, because it impacts their decision-making on the field. So there, there may be ways where it's almost impossible to implement it, um, yet I still think it's worthwhile to continue to try to test it and see and develop the best method to do so. And when it's 100% perfected, then perhaps it's rolled out, but um, there's only one way to try it, and that's to experiment with it and see. Yeah, and Joe, we were just talking about how it seems very simple because we're all used to seeing the K-zone on the screen, and if it's in the strike zone box, then it's yeah. yellow and it's a strike, and it's all very simple and easy. But I think there are ways in which we might not even be considering how it could change the game. So talk a little bit about how you think it would affect the game and, and maybe what the unintended consequences could be. Well, we, you know, I just did a, a survey with Fox Sports. We did it. We surveyed uh, 800 baseball fans. Um, and I, that was one of the questions. Do you want RoboOps? And we were really surprised. I was. Uh, it was something like 12% wants it. 
You know, they're, they're allowed 12%. I mean, you'll hear from them. <laughs> but it's a very, very small percentage, really, that want robo-umps. And, and I think that, you know, I, I write about this all the time, but the, the unintended consequences of every kind of, especially when it comes to technology, we see it in football all the time. It, all anybody wanted from replay, let's get the calls right, right? That's, it seems so simple. But the problem is when you start slowing things down and start looking at it from 12 different angles, you realize that every call is really, really, really close. And so they have to change the catch rule every single year because some new thing came up that they didn't see before. What we were talking about, and we already know this to be true, there are strikes that would be called strikes by a robo-ump that 0% of fans would think is a strike. Literally 0%. Every single person who would look at it on screen would say, okay, that was a mistake by the robo-ump. There was like some sort of glitch. But it actually is technically a strike. And we see it in baseball now with replay where they slow it down and so a guy steals second base, his foot bounces off the base by a half inch or a millimeter, he gets tagged while his foot bounced off the base and we're like, he's out. And he's been safe for 100 years, but he's out now because, and, and I'm not saying he should be safe, but I'm saying that it doesn't look right. And, and we, you know, we, we basically just, we just jump into these things without realizing, hey, okay, yes, there'll be some really, really good parts that'll come from this, but there are gonna be some things that are gonna be very tough to swallow. And, and the robo-omp thing is definitely a case of we see every time, and I'm one of these people too, anytime I see an umpire blow a strike ball call that's clearly blown, I, I lose my mind. It's time for robo-umps. Let's go. This is stupid. It's enough of this. But then if I saw a robo-ump do that, which he would, inevitably, she, I don't know if robo-ump is he or she, um, <laughs> inevitably, uh, I would go crazy too, but I'd have nobody to yell at. I mean, you, you can't yell at the computer. And so... Um, you know, one other example of this is tennis. Tennis is probably has the best replay system in sports, or at least the most accepted, because, you know, you, you hit a ball, the guy challenges, and then they show that little animated thing, and then you see that the ball was out by a millimeter, and everybody goes, oh, okay, he was out. That thing is not that accurate. That thing is accurate to, like, 92% or something like that. So we all accepted it, but it's making wrong calls. We've just accepted it. So... When we get to the point where we're willing to accept the, the, the strikes that absolutely don't look like strikes, I just don't think we're there yet. And the strike zone is sort of this subtly shifting thing throughout a, a plate appearance, throughout an at-bat in ways that I think people don't necessarily appreciate unless a, a call goes against you. But <laughs> the strike zone on 3-0 is different from the strike zone on 0-2, and people get offended about that, and they say, how can it be different on this count or that count? It's supposed to go here to here and there to there, and it should always be the same. But... I think people might not like it if the O2 strike zone were just as, as tight as, as it always is. I mean, if you fall behind in the count, umpires kind of give you a, a chance to get back into it a little bit. Well, it's a fascinating yeah. question. Mm -hmm. The question is, uh, what's more important, flow of the game or accuracy? Right. I mean, it's really an interesting question. And used to be, umpires were given complete leeway on that, right? Your, your job is to keep the game going so that everybody feels it was fairly officiated. And it wasn't about, oh, it was that strike, you know, a tenth of an inch off the plate. It was always about, you know, call the game fairly, and, and that was the way baseball was played. Obviously, it can't be like that now. We have too much. We know too much. We can see too much. But that's 100% right. I, people do not appreciate how 
Everybody accepts that a 3-0, the strike zone is going to be pretty wide for a 3-0. You're going to take it, uh, probably. Uh, it's going to be pretty wide, and, and everybody understands that. And everybody also understands that 0-2, if you get a call that was a strike at 3-0 on an 0-2 count, the batter goes out of his mind. Like, how could you possibly call that a strike on 0-2? Right. So in our minds, we don't even think about it, but, but there is many, many calculations. That, there are many, many calculations that go into how a game is, is umpired that would simply go away if we went with a robo-ump that was calling it exactly percentage-wise by the book. Mm -hmm. So we have a question from the crowd. Of the rule changes that get thrown around, robo-ump, universal DH, mound height, et cetera, which is the most feasible, which is the best idea? Maybe we can just go down the line here. And I'll start. I, I think mound distance, to me, is the one that makes the most sense, even more so than mound height, just because you, know, you have pitchers who are Chris Young-sized <laughs> at this point, and, and you didn't have that 100 years ago. And so when pitchers today are letting go of the ball, they're doing so closer to home plate than they ever used to before, and they're also throwing harder. It just seems fair to me to move them back a bit and, and give batters a little more time. And I think that's sort of an unobtrusive change that would actually make a major difference. And, you know, 60 feet, 6 inches is not a very satisfying number anyway. I know there's maybe more precedent for raising and lowering the mound than moving the mound, but to me that would be the, the easier or simpler change. Frank, is there a, a rule change that gets bandied about or that you personally think would uh, make the most sense to implement? Uh, not necessarily, and I'm not, I don't think I'm a big fan of saying move the mound back, um, and maybe it's because I'm a little more traditional. It's been 60 feet, 6 inches, and I, I'm not sure we need to mess with that. The mound has changed in height, and so if that's one way you can uh, uh, adjust things. Um, but, you know, the way the game has changed, um, you know, there are things that aren't happening in the game. You don't see sacrifice bunts. You don't see hit and run. Uh, Do steals are down. Do we miss sacrifice bunts? Well, again, a traditionalist, yes, okay? DH, no, I don't like the DH. So I like to see a game that's, you know, well played and, well, you know, the, the strategy is good. Um, but strikeouts were uh, all-time high, more strikeouts than hits. Sure. Um, and with the shift, you know, that has created the, the opportunity for uh, clubs to tell the players, hey, hit it over the shift, all right? So, you know, swing for the fence. If you strike out, you strike out. Over 162 games, the numbers say you're going to do this versus, you know what, trying to hit the ball the other way. Um, I, I don't think banning the shift is an answer. Um, we've always had uh, that part of the game. It's just now so much more dramatic when you're moving the third baseman behind second base and you know doing things that are so dramatic. So uh, there's a lot of things that have been kicked around and bantered that um, I personally don't like. Um, I'm not a fan of the idea of a robo-ump. Um, I think that's going to cause a lot more problems in the long run. Um, and it's taken away from the game. i got to be honest with you, I loved it when there was a close call and the manager came out and argued and there was some back and forth, and boom, he gets tossed. and Nobody gets tossed anymore, right? Chris, I mean, uh, hardly we, ever. I, we, uh, my department oversees ejections, and there still are a lot. <laughs> well, I don't know about a lot, but they're very quiet. Maybe because, not relative to what they used to be. Well, but, yeah, because if yeah. there's a replay on the call, if he takes one step out of the dugout, he's gone. He hasn't gotten a chance to get out there. And so anyway, for me, that was an exciting part of the game. That's gone because of the way the rules have changed. So moving the mount back, raising it up, pitch clock, those are all things that are going to be talked about uh, by, by, by minds much brighter than myself. 
um, and good luck with it. Okay, <laughs> I hope you do well. But anyway, that's my take on it. Chris, do you have a, a pet proposal? Yeah, I mean, Ben, they're, they're all things that I'm sure have been out there publicly that have been um, analyzed. And, you know, I guess it depends on what the objective is. I mean, if we're looking at increasing pace of the game, um, there's certain things such as the pitch clock that may do that alone. Uh, if you're looking at limiting um, pitching changes or even mid-inning mid pitching changes, um, you know, I, it's publicly out there that there's um, a three-batter minimum on the on the table right now. And so there's a lot of different ways. It just really depends on what the objective is. You know, um, there are traditionalists in the National League who want to see pitchers hit, and there's, you know, average fans who uh, could care less about seeing who somebody who's hitting 114 go up to bat <laughs> three times a night. So uh, it really, you know, it, it just depends. And, um, you know, if in terms of the velocity and the way the game has evolved over the last few years, certainly what you said in terms of moving the mound back, uh, there's some merit to that. Um, in fact, uh, I think that we've learned that the mound was set at 60 feet, 6 inches, all the way back to either 1893 or 1898. And so it's, you know, it goes back a long way, and that was a different type of game back then. So uh, really, I think they're all worth considering. What the right answer is or the most feasible um, that's the hard part, and there's uh, a lot of smart people studying it, and hopefully we'll find you know the right answers in time. But um, again, it comes back to that balance of you know keeping this great game that we have and, and the tradition of it, uh, while still wanting to evolve and make the product as good as possible. Mm -hmm. Ariel's, Ariel, does anything sound particularly appealing to you? Uh, well. With the ca initial caveat, this is clearly outside of my area of expertise, <laughs> and just uh, sort of speaking as a fan, one of the ideas I had was to help uh, what is possibly one of the uh, most underappreciated difficult jobs in America, the third base coach. Um, and, and I think it might be nice to allow teams to apply you know, computer vision systems to basically predict with a good level of accuracy, hopefully, whether they should send the runner home or not, and have a little haptic system to let them give them a little bit of guidance and help and, and maybe some backup if people start to second guess what they do all the time. I'm glad someone's thinking about the third base coach. Uh, <laughs> Joe, what's your pick? Well, it's not fair to ask me because you know I just want to ban the uh, intentional walk and I've been wanting to ban the intentional walk for mm -hmm. ever. Um, here's, what, here's what I really think. And I, I, there is one suggestion out there that I've heard that's really, really interesting to me that I'll, that I'll mention. But what I think is more important is exactly what Frank and Chris both said. Uh, in different ways. And that is just, I think we need to be more open to change. I think baseball needs to be more open to change. Um, we've fallen in love with things that aren't the same as what they used to be. 60 feet, 6 inches is not the same. You know, uh, I happen to know this just because I'm, I'm a geek this way. It was 1893 that, the, that the, it went, and it went from 50 feet. But of course, back then, pitchers also only had to, they had to throw underhand. Mm -hmm. They had to pitch the ball like horseshoes. So we should go so back to that. Maybe that I'm might solve some that. problems. I'm all yeah. for that. And, and <laughs> it's been rumored that the rate, the way they got to 60 feet six inches was that whoever was doing the mound that day couldn't read the zero and thought it was a six. <laughs> so it was supposed to be 60 feet, and they moved it back an arbitrary six more inches. It's <laughs> almost certain that that's true. Um, but I, but I think just being open. To, to a lot of different ideas. And, and I think this, this Atlantic uh, League thing is so cool where you can just try stuff out and, and really throw it against the wall because you want to keep... Here's the thing. It, baseball is changing whether you change it or not. The game is different than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 30 Absolutely. years ago, 50 years ago. It's very different than it was. 
and and those those things happen just sort of through evolution and which is fine but i think you want to be able to have some control of it so one idea i heard um from a from a gm in, in baseball was this idea of making this is crazy but 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 hear me out making the base bigger way bigger so it's like a foot bigger on each side and the reason to do it so so it's still technically 90 feet between bases but the base is way bigger and and the idea would be that it would basically be a foot uh more uh so it would basically you would you it would be much more it would be much more worthwhile to put the ball in play because you'd have a much better chance of beating it out. Stolen base, it would bring the stolen base back into the game. Uh, potentially bring triples back into the game. There's some things that it would do that could conceivably do. It's a very, very small thing. Of course, if you said, well, why don't we just make them 89 feet, everybody would go crazy. Nobody would ever, you can't change the distance between the bases. But if you can make the bases bigger, and really you're, you're still cutting the distance between the bases, just that kind of thinking is is at least that kind of stuff is what we should be thinking about. If we can't change 60 feet six inches, is there a way to make it so that it is a little bit further from the plate somehow? And I don't think lowering the mound necessarily, they, I know there, there's a lot of injury issues about that kind of thing as well. So, you know, there's lots of things. I just think baseball should be open to everything. Mm -hmm. If we have time for one more here, we have a question. In the same way the shift has changed in-game strategy, what is the next tactical change that you think we will or should see? If anyone has an idea, I'll just say, personally, I like seeing all the two-way players who are in camps this spring. I, I don't know how many of them will actually stick on rosters and do that full-time, but just seeing Shohei Otani do it successfully for at least half a season last year was very encouraging, and I think opened some minds, and, and that's a really fun change. I think the shift is going to directly lead to, to the opposite. I think that you're going to just see a lot more people hitting the ball the other way. I mean, that's already happening in the minor leagues where you're seeing a lot of people punch the ball the other way. Uh, Theo Epstein told me point blank, he goes, there's no reason to ban the shift because in five years it'll be useless because players are now growing up with it. They're developing against it and you're not going to be able to shift against them because they're going to take advantage of it time after time. Um, so, so I think th that sort of counter strategy is probably going to come up. I think the, the most interesting thing that's on the table, whether or not it actually gets anywhere, is this pitchers having to face three batters. That rule fundamentally changes baseball. Absolutely. The way we understand it now, it wouldn't have changed it in 1978, but, but the way baseball is played now, that would, it would, it would, it would, we don't know what it would do to the, to the left-handed specialist. Obviously, that changes that entirely. Um, but it also would be a situation where you think twice before bringing in a pitcher. If I've got to face, you know, it's, it's super easy now to bring in your big right-hander because to face the one right-hander and then have, he doesn't have to face the next two lefties. But are you going to bring that guy in if you know he does have to face the next two lefties? It just changes the game. Um, very interesting. I don't know if that will ever get anywhere, but that's, the fact that that's on the table publicly is very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Chris, how would a pitch clock have impacted your career? And maybe since that's hypothetical, you can talk about how the shift did or didn't impact your career when it began to really spread. Yeah, um, the pitch clock, you know, that's a great question because I don't know really how long. I think I was a relatively fast worker, but I'd have to ask my former teammates <laughs> if, if they agreed. I'm sure they had some really long days out there behind me. Uh, 
I, I really don't think the pitch clock would have affected me. I think that I would have been cognizant of it, but not, it wouldn't have been at the forefront of my mind. And I think that after a while, you start to get the hang of it. And especially it's been implemented in the minor leagues for four or five years now to a point where the pitchers all coming up to the big leagues, um, you know, all of them have played with the pitch clock to some extent. So, uh, you know, I really think that in time, the, the players would adapt and adjust. Um, in terms of the shift, how it impacted me during my career, I was a big proponent of it. I mean, if I felt like, you know, I could execute a pitch, and I think it rewards the pitchers who can execute, and that's an important part of today's game, is that we see so much power in today's game. To an extent, I think we've lost the ability, the art of pitching, and um, the guys like Greg Maddox in today's game uh, probably aren't valued as much as they were in the last generation. And for me, that's an important aspect to bring back. I think there's a beauty to watching a guy go out there and really um, not survive with power. And certainly I wasn't a power guy, but um, watching former teammates and, and seeing that, and now you have all these guys coming in who throw so hard. And if you talk to any hitters, in fact, there was an article uh, this past season where they interviewed three hitters, Matt Carpenter, Daniel Murphy, and another left-handed hitter who all said the same thing, that it is so hard to face these guys throwing 97, 98 miles an hour one or two times, and then all of a sudden the starter's out of the game after their second at bat, so they never really got to time up the starting pitcher. Then they've got one reliever after the next who throw just as hard, and their breaking stuff is unbelievably good, that you know, they're better off swinging for the fences and trying to hit home runs than they are shortening up and poking the ball the other way because it's going to take multiple base hits to score a run, three singles to score a run perhaps against a guy like that where it's even just hard to put the ball in play. So they're incentivized to swing for the fences. And that's why I don't know if necessarily banning the shift is going to answer the, the issue in today's game, which is really balls in play. Um, and historically, batting average on balls in play has always been 300, whether there's a shift or no shift. So um, I, I don't know if that's the answer, but you know, as a non-power pitcher and somebody who relied on execution, uh, I like knowing that if I've made the right pitch to Barry Bonds and executed it perfectly, uh, he'd hit it to the second baseman instead of over the wall in center field. <laughs> right. All right, well, I think we're out of time, so we've saved baseball, and it only took us an hour. Oh, so thanks, everybody. There you go. <laughs> right. Good job, man. If you want to hear these panels in person next year on March 6th and 7th, 2020 in Boston, please register for the 14th annual MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference at sloansportsconference.com. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.